Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Brian Ballow. If you're new to the podcast, Nathan, Ed Ayers, Joanne Freeman, and I are all historians. Each week, we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Today, we're going to start off in Charleston, South Carolina, where a Purple Heart was just awarded to a World War I veteran for his heroic service 100 years ago. It, it, was, it was absolutely great. Um, I, I'm, I get kind of emotional, particularly when uh, something this near and dear to my heart is undertaking. And um, so I got a little teary-eyed. That was Perry James, grandson of World War I veteran and Purple Heart winner, Sergeant Perry Lloyd. And after I was finished, I wish I said that soldiers don't cry, soldiers don't cry. But then I realized I was a sailor. <laughs> and they do cry. <laughs> but, it, but in all seriousness, um, I, I tend to take life with the glass half full. And right. um, I, I don't fault anybody for my grandfather not getting the recognition. Um, I'm grateful to be in the position to do the research and to give back to the community and to receive such a wonderful honor on behalf of um, my grandfather. And my mother, she was sitting there. She's uh, 88 years old. Her name is Elise Uh James, Elise Lloyd James. And when we first found out about um, my grandfather's wounding, she had forgotten about it a little bit. And she said, yeah, I do remember him saying that he was wounded about the head. And she said, well, Perry, uh, I just want you to get me his Purple Heart. Mm. And and you just really don't tell Elise Lloyd James no. <laughs> so, so that's what sent you on your mission. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was on my yeah. mission. And when we got the actual email, I was at her house, got the email that we, my grandfather had been awarded the Purple Heart. You would have thought we won that $1 billion lottery that's out there. Wow. Now, you ended up going to France to retrace your grandfather's steps. Uh, Absolutely. What was that like? Oh, there's a big smile that comes on my face every time I think about it. (laughs) I'm thanking all the lucky stars that I had this opportunity to go over because it afforded me a chance to actually go to the site in France, where my grandfather had been wounded a hundred mm. year a hundred years to the day, wow, so if you can imagine being out in a tall hill surrounded by vast amounts of of land and look at a monument there that is dedicated to the African American soldiers that lost their lives. Right. And to look at that monument and see the name of a gentleman by the name of William Lang. And before I went over, I found out that Mr. Lang 
was grew up actually a half a mile from where my where I grew up. Mm. So there was a real connection, and to witness the name of someone uh, on the monument, to note that they were killed, and to just think that your grandfather could name could have been on that monument. It is a surreal, real moment. So I have to ask you, this experience of going all the way to France and finding a monument commemorating the 371st, what do you feel when you see that, especially when you think about the struggle it takes to commemorate African-American veterans in the United States? It's disappointing and disheartening uh, because Mm -hmm. of my awareness now, particularly of my grandfather, and the other men in the 371st Colored Infantry Regiment, it's a big part of our history that's missing. And in this world of tension between the races, it's just a great opportunity to share with other Americans, particularly white Americans who uh, sometimes don't even know that African Americans fought in the Great War and fought gallantly um, and um, were brave soldiers. And so it's disheartening. However, I have to realize that's, that's the country that I was born in. This is a country that I served in the military of and a lot of my other family members. Uh, you just have to go about and tell as many people as you can. And, and that's my mission. I, I, in a general conversation, I just can't help but tell somebody, hey, do you know that, uh, or let me tell you that my grandfather was a World War I veteran who earned the Purple Heart and who made sergeant in four months. Mm. As we sit here in 2018, 2019, and look back on World War I, what should we remember about the Great War, and what do you think we should remember about African Americans' role in it in particular? Well, I, I think... Part of it is to recognize that the turn of the century was a time when actu- when civil rights actually gained a little momentum because mm. uh, leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois and other notable leaders in the African-American community were very disappointed that there was not any space in the United States Army for African-Americans to go to combat. Traditionally, the only thing African-American soldiers could do back then was labor-intensive jobs, like uh, unload freight cars, uh, cook the meals, uh, dig graves and and bury the dead. The the African-American community at the turn of the century felt that through combat, African-American men could show their mettle they could show their dedication to the United States, uh, and they could show their willingness to serve in hopes of gaining respect in the white community. And initially, there was not going to be any African-American combat troops, but because of the protest launched by these early civil rights leaders, uh, the federal government decided that yeah, okay, we'll allow for four African-American, at the time, colored regiments. Just thinking about all the ways in which 
the local politics of race played out in the military really makes the service itself seem that much more heroic. Absolutely, it does. And, and, and you know, I can only imagine my grandfather and his troops fighting for a country that saw them as not even citizens and not even second-class citizens. And who, if when they came back home, if these African Americans could ha- um, wore their uniforms, they would be lynched or, or beaten up. And mind you, that's a uniform that you were, were fighting in, and and you mm-hmm. get shot and you spilled your blood. But you can't wear that uniform when you come back home. So it was a, a distressing feeling for them. The uh, the group that my grandfather was in was nicknamed the Red Hands. And they were nicknamed that um, because of all the German blood that was shed by those hands. And so they were were pretty geeked up. Formidable. Yeah, yeah, they were formidable. (laughs) But that patch uh, was a symbol of accomplishment, uh, a symbol of their manhood. And the Army did not want them to come back to the United States uh, confident. And cocky, for lack of a better term. So they actually made them strip the red hand patch off of their clothing before they boarded the transport ship back to the United States. However, wow. and I'm a reenactor. I wear my grandfather's uniform, and I wear his red hand patch proudly today. The Great War decimated Europe and left millions of casualties, including over 100,000 American soldiers. A century ago this month, the bloodshed finally ended with the signing of the armistice. Today, we look at the legacy of World War I and the ways in which the war is still with us 100 years later. We'll be looking at how America raced to build the largest chemical weapons program in the world, the rise of the surveillance state, and how Woodrow Wilson tried to recreate the world in America's image. But first, as the United States mobilized for war in 1917, Americans began to fear for their young soldiers. Besides all the obvious fears of battle, they were also terrified of soldiers getting venereal diseases. And they had reason to worry. In the days before penicillin, VD could decommission a lot of soldiers. To head off the threat, President Wilson and a coalition of progressive reformers set up the Committee on Training Camp Activities. In 2014, I spoke to historian Nancy Bristow about this group of reformers and their different ideas of how to stop the scourge of venereal disease. I would describe sort of three wings here. You've got people concerned with purity, people concerned with social justice, and people concerned with efficiency. So the purity reformers are going to want to, you know, provide opportunities for people to have safe, clean, healthful interactions, men and women together, to be good middle-class Americans who have self-control and manage their bodies through sexual abstinence, uh, at least until marriage. Mm -hmm. And they're going to do things like um, hosting picnics and having town parades. Uh, And those things aren't going to have much impact and will become less and less important to the federal government as the war goes on. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to have social justice reformers 
who may be trying to manage the situation in a, in a pretty complicated way uh, to provide opportunities for girls to find a, a route that is meaningful to them away from prostitution, away from simply being exploited uh, for sex during the war. But the efficiency reformers, when push comes to shove, are going to be most interested in keeping the soldiers free of disease. Right. And the Commission on Training Camp Activities, the federal agency that's actually created to oversee these issues during the war. Uh, the CTCA is really most of all concerned with efficiency. And here you can think of any number of urban governments that are set up in this time to run things in a more democratic but also more efficient manner. Right. These folks, when it comes to VD, are wanting to hand out condoms. They want to cut to the chase. They want to cut to the chase. And that's really where the, the federal government comes down, is that they really want virile yet virginal soldiers, as the, as the historian Alan Brandt describes it. But they're willing to have a backup plan. So it sounds to me like virile trumped virginal. Yes. They're going to be willing to use law enforcement programs, and they're going to use them uh, pretty repressively for young women. Part of what happens as they begin a more uh, law enforcement-directed program to prevent venereal disease is they begin to uh, arrest women on the street, and they arrest them for a range of behaviors. They need not actually be engaging in anything that resembles a sexual act. In fact, they can be at a dance and dance incorrectly. And once you're arrested, you are um, taken to a hospital or to a, some sort of medical clinic where you're tested for venereal disease. If you have it, you are then locked up in a hospital until you're cured. In a pre-penicillin world, this could take months and months and months. You might never be cured. Once you're cured, you are then prosecuted for your crime. And then once you're prosecuted, you are held uh, in a reformatory, uh, often on what was called an indeterminate sentence. So for all the talk of social justice reformers about moving to a world where men and women were treated the same, where both would become you know, advocates of purity in American life, the reality is that both this commission— and the American populace, and I suppose I should add a third population, the American soldiers, they don't buy it by and large. Boys will be boys, men will be men, but women are to be the moral bastions of the American culture. This coalition is easy to make fun of, but they did have some very idealistic hopes. Did the coalition hold together after the war? Were uh, any of these objectives uh, pursued in the 1920s, and were the actors the same? Uh, historians have long said uh, that World War I brought the end of the progressive movement. I would actually frame it just a little bit differently and say that the war actually empowered progressives and created coalitions that perhaps were a little bit tenuous all along. And so suddenly you have people who before had been able to imagine themselves having a coalition. Okay, we'll work together on this because we all agree that venereal disease is a serious problem in American life. They could hold together tenuously until there's actual real power to hand around. Until you actually begin to repress American women and lock them up, uh, until you begin to distribute condoms, and then they begin to really recognize the differences that they have. And in the aftermath of the war, the progressive coalition in general is coming apart at the seams, even as Americans are just fed up with federal intervention in their lives. We go from an all for one and one for all to, uh, uh, you know, individualism. It's up to you to make your own way. Let's not have a social safety net. Let's not be preoccupied with community. 
Nancy Bristow is professor of history at the University of Puget Sound. She's the author of Making Men Moral, Social Engineering During the Great War. During World War I, soldiers were stuck in the trenches for months on end. So, for the first time, combatants turned to chemical weapons to push ahead and break through the stalemate. And by the end of the war, the U.S. capacity for chemical warfare had surpassed all of its allies in the span of just 18 months. Journalist Theo Emery tells us how it happened. Well, there were centuries of uh, treaties that governed the laws of war in Europe, um, and uh, gas warfare had actually been a part of those uh, treaties and those negotiations for a very long time. There was actually a treaty in 1675, the uh, Strasbourg Agreement between oh France and Germany, uh, which prohibited the use of poison bullets. Um, more recently than that, there was also the uh, um, uh, Brussels Agreement uh, in 1876 and the Hague Conventions in 1899 and in 1907 that uh, forbid the use of asphyxiating gases in shells. So there was a, a pretty clear, uh, you know, when the Germans used chemical weapons, uh, I guess you could say successfully for the first time in April of 1915, it was definitely seen as a violation of international law, both the letter of the law as well as the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was an immediate, you know, very strong reaction on the part of newspaper editorials, you know, all across the world, um, a great deal of outcry over this. Um, and yet, uh, all of the combatants then went forward with their own uh, chemical weapons programs. So, Theo, give me some sense of what life was like at American University in these testing facilities. Sure. It was, uh, I have to say, it was a, a very grim existence for, uh, for these men. Uh, it was very dangerous. Um, it was uh, a lot of uncertainty about what kinds of uh, substances they were handling. There was a constant danger uh, of injury, and injuries were actually quite common. Uh, they were actually required as well to participate in what were called man tests. And sometimes these were tests where they would put on a gas mask and test how well it was working. Uh, but some of the tests also included things like rolling up their sleeve and having different new kinds of chemical agents dropped on their skin to mm. see what the impact would be. Um, and uh, there's many photos at the National archives of uh, soldiers with their sleeves rolled up with uh, these, uh, you know, blisters on their skin where they've been uh, tested with chemical agents. So it was very dangerous, uh, kind of grim work. And in around 1918, uh, the Chemical Warfare Service recognized that unless they made a little bit more of an effort to kind of uh, improve life for these men, that morale was going to suffer. So uh, they started a whole series of different things to try to, uh, frankly, improve life uh, for these soldiers and chemists. And so they started a newspaper, for example. Uh, they started uh, banjo clubs and a glee club. They had dances. They wow. had a talent show. Um, they... Uh, they had uh, sports teams. They actually had a very successful football team called the Mustard Gassers, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, who apparently uh, beat uh, most, if not all, the other uh, Army intramural football teams all around Washington, D.C. So there was this effort to kind of uh, provide a, a slightly lighter 
uh, recreation for the men who who faced uh, some you know really difficult work and very dangerous work on a day to day basis. Mm. Discussed Amos Freeze. He found himself appointed chief to the Expeditionary Force Gas Service in the United States. What did he do to prepare for gas warfare? After expecting to be put in charge of the roads in France, he's called into his superior officer's office and said, "How would you like to be chief of the gas service in Europe?" And he thinks about it, uh, and he says, well, somebody's got to be the goat, and might as well be me. So he accepts it, and they hand him, uh, the way he described it, was a thin manila folder, which contained everything that the American expeditionary forces knew about gas warfare at that point. Um, So he built this up uh, essentially from nothing, mainly Mm -hmm. from... Uh, learning from and piggybacking off of the efforts of the French, but especially the British uh, and and their efforts at uh, establishing a a chemical warfare uh, arsenal and capacity. After the war, Amos Fries becomes a vocal advocate of chemical warfare. I'm curious about the kinds of arguments he made in favor of using those weapons. Um, So uh, on the one hand, uh, Freeze took the view that chemical warfare was more humane than conventional weapons. Mm. And the argument, that argument came out of uh, data that was collected by uh, the uh, War Department that showed that while many soldiers were injured by chemical weapons, very few of them died from them. So mm. uh, to uh, freeze and like-minded advocates of chemical weapons, this meant that it took soldiers off the battlefield without killing them or maiming them permanently. So therefore, Mm. it was a more humane weapon because uh, you weren't, uh, say, disfigured or, or for that matter, dismembered by something like high explosives or a machine gun. On the other hand, he also made an argument, sometimes in the same breadth, that (laughs) chemical weapons uh, were necessary because you needed to make war so horrible, just so awful that no one would ever want to fight them again. So we would be, mm. it, these are sort of the early seeds of strategic deterrence, uh, right. which has became, you know, a, a, a huge uh, factor in uh, in the 20th century with nuclear weapons. So he right. took the view that, uh, that warfare just, uh, the chemical weapons would make war so awful that no one would want to fight it. So he would say these things uh, almost in the same breath. You know, they're more humane, and at the same time, they made the battlefield so awful uh, that no one would even want to go to war. Full of Mm. contradictions. Mm. Mm. So I'm really curious to know how America's experience of developing chemical weapons might have served as a precursor for the Manhattan Project, or even for what Eisenhower would later describe as the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think this history is is so important, uh, because in a lot of ways, uh, it's not some uh, kind of atavistic fact of the past. In many ways, it's actually still with us today in ways that I think, uh, you know, aren't aren't that obvious and should be understood a little bit better. So one of them is uh, the fact that uh, the idea of deterrence, uh, that everyone has to have a weapon in order to prevent anyone from using that weapon uh, is an idea that did not begin with nuclear weapons after World War II. It began with chemical weapons in World War I. Mm. So this uh, this this um, policy of deterrence, which kind of undergirded sort of the spine of the 20th century and the Cold War, is something that came directly out of World War I, which I think a lot of people have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a little bit more concretely than that, you're right, um, many historians consider the 
very rapid uh, 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 creation of the Chemical Warfare Service as kind of a precursor, a dry run, really, for the Manhattan Project in World War II. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, some of the same people were actually involved with both. Um, the young chemist who was in charge of the plant in Willoughby, Ohio, making Lewisite, uh, was James Bryant Conant, who went on to become president of Harvard and then became a key figure in the Manhattan Project. Wow. And that's true of other very well-known uh, physicists uh, and other scientists who also uh, worked on chemical warfare in World War One and participated in or assisted with the Manhattan Project in World War Two. So, um, so I think that's a, a very real uh, legacy as well. Take us back to the beginning of the story, where you know the, the development of chemical weapons in the United States at American University jumps off. And tell me what happened at American University after World War One, and particularly in the area of D.C. where the campus was located. You know, by the end of the war. Uh, American University was, uh, you know, it, it was almost like a kind of toxic boomtown um, mm-hmm. with almost 2,000 soldiers and scientists there. Now, um, by mid-1918, the War Department had invested about a million dollars in American University in, in buildings, uh, in, in infrastructure. And the plan was that the War Department would either purchase American University or seize it by eminent domain along with all the land around the campus that they were using as a proving ground and a testing ground, and they would turn it into a permanent seat for chemical warfare research beyond Mm. the war. Um, Now, that might well have come to pass except for something that happened on August 3rd of 1918. And on that morning, uh, there were some soldiers who were doing an experiment at an outdoor uh, Lewisite still on the American University campus, and the pipes clogged, and there was an explosion, and a cloud of Lewisite was released from this outdoor still. And so it created mm-hmm. this cloud that sort of floated roughly southwest across the campus and down a gully and enveloped a house that was just outside the barbed wire fence of the American University Experiment Station. Well, it just so happened that a former U.S. senator lived in that house, who's a man named Nathan Bay Scott. Hmm. And he was sitting on a porch uh, with his wife and his sister-in-law when this gas cloud began uh, sweeping toward them. And they got inside the house, uh, but not before all three of them had been exposed to the gas. And he wasn't killed. Uh, All three of them uh, were had sort of minor injuries, but it became a huge scandal that this uh, research station inside the city limits of Washington could be so dangerous and they could affect uh, civilians, including one who was as prominent as Nathan Bay Scott. So um, this created a great deal of tension between the Chemical Warfare Service and the Corps of Engineers, uh, as well as the uh, the commission which governed the city of Washington. And eventually, the Chemical Warfare Service had to abandon this plan, and they said, we're going to close up the experiment station after the war, and we're going to turn it back over to American University, which is what they did. But uh, they left some things behind. Uh, They had shells that were leaking. Uh, They had – there were items that they deemed too dangerous to move, Uh, so they buried (laughs) them. And, well, over subsequent uh, decades, all of this land was developed into a very – posh neighborhood. Uh, It was called Spring Valley. Um, And these were very, very large houses, mansions, really. Um, And this history of how this area and the campus was used for chemical warfare was essentially all but forgotten uh, until the 1990s. And 
1993, uh, during construction on a very sort of distant part of Spring Valley, an excavation crew uh, dug up a mortar that had been buried since probably 1918 or early 1919. Wow. And this backhoe operator heard uh, gas hissing out of this mortar shell, uh, called the fire department or the police, and they called in the army. And a state of emergency ensued, and a cleanup began, which is actually continuing today, 25 years later. (laughs) Uh, A quarter of a century, Spring Valley is still being cleaned up from this work of 100 years ago. Theo Emery is a journalist and the author of the book Hellfire Boys, The Birth of the U.S. Chemical Warfare Service and the Race for the World's Deadliest Weapons. Most Americans rallied around the war effort, but there was dissent as well, especially after Congress instituted the draft. Some three million eligible men refused to register, and there were large-scale public protests against the war. President Wilson and Congress reacted by passing the Espionage Act of 1917 and the 1918 Sedition Act. In 2017, I spoke to Beverly Gage about how the Espionage and Sedition Acts repressed civil liberties in the wake of the war. So those laws basically banned criticism of the war effort, criticism of the government, criticism conveniently of the president, um, and particularly criticism uh, and uh, disruption of the draft. Thousands of Americans were arrested for speaking out against the war. Gage points out that the government wasn't just stifling dissent. U.S. officials were worried about German spies, especially after German saboteurs blew up a munitions depot in New York Harbor in 1916. So there were real concerns, but the question was uh, how you were going to deal with those concerns, what the legal lines would be, what the cultural lines would be. And and I think that, uh, (laughs) let's just say, the United States did not always get that balance right. Political radicals were the chief targets of the government crackdown. They included anarchists, socialists, and the members of left-wing labor movements, who all believed the conflict was... Just a war of blood and treasure. It's empires fighting each other. The working man should not be going to war. Consider the case of Eugene Debs. Eugene Debs really was the most famous socialist in the United States at this moment, and From the vantage point of the 21st century, that might not sound like much, but you actually had a huge and pretty widespread socialist movement in the United States at this point. Um, A lot of that movement was centered in the Midwest. Debs himself was from Indiana, and so he was sort of the standard bearer of, you know, good corn-fed Midwestern American socialism. Debs had run for president several times, first as a Democrat and then as a socialist candidate. In the 1912 election, he won a million votes. Even people who aren't in the Socialist Party uh, like to show up at Debs' rallies to hear him speak. He's this kind of famous, charismatic figure. And anyone in the United States um, in 1917, if you said the name Eugene Debs, they would know who he was. Debs didn't buy Wilson's rhetoric that he was making the world safe for democracy. But in his anti-war speeches, Debs had to choose his words very carefully. 
Debs, like many political radicals, then faces a question of his own, which is that he's still pretty opposed to this war. He still thinks it's a war for blood and treasure, a war that's exploiting the working class. Um, and he feels this deep in his soul. Um, but he knows that he probably shouldn't say everything that he is thinking. So a lot of his speeches during the war try to kind of strike that balance. Um, and he says, uh, you know, I don't believe that we should be drafting working men into the army, but I'm not going to go too far with that. Um, and so uh, he really tries to strike a balance. Right. And Debs runs afoul of that Enhanced Espionage Act in June of 1918. T tell us what he does. So Debs finally does get in trouble for a speech that he makes in Canton, Ohio in the spring of 1918. And again, he's pretty careful about what he's saying. Um, he goes and visits some uh, working men who are themselves in jail for um, various speech violations for criticizing the war effort. And he comes out and says, and I'll just read a little of his speech here. He says, they have come to realize, as many of us have, that it is extremely dangerous to exercise the constitutional right of free speech in a country fighting to make democracy safe for the world. I realize in speaking to you this afternoon that there are certain limitations placed on the right of free speech. So in the end, he actually gets thrown in prison for a speech that is about um, how difficult it is to, to preserve the right of free speech at a time of war. In a country that is fighting a war to, quote, Debs, to preserve democracy. That's right. That's one of the great contradictions of the First World War is that Woodrow Wilson is going around the world saying we are the great champions of democracy. We're fighting a war for democracy. Um, but at home, it's really one of the most repressive periods in American history. So many thousands of Germans are put into internment camps. Uh, many, several thousand people who have spoken out against the war are prosecuted. And then there are a whole series of uh, really pretty gruesome vigilante attacks against anti-war protesters, um, against German immigrants um, that really give this period a flavor of, of repression and fear on the home front. And how long is Debs jailed for when he's convicted? Uh, jailed for defending free speech. So he is given a pretty serious sentence of 10 years. Wow. Um, and this is for nothing more than a speech, really. Um, and he appeals this. Uh, the case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they say that seems fine. The Espionage Act is is a fine law, and, and we uphold it. I mean, one of the, one of the I guess, ironies of Debs's jail sentence is that he ends up not going to prison until after the war is already over. Yeah. Um, and he only ends up spending a couple of years there, but they're pretty significant years. So he runs for president in <laughs> 1920 from federal prison, which is a pretty remarkable thing. And you, there are these amazing photos of Debs sort of uh, standing there in his prison uniform <laughs> near, uh, near his cell, um, you know, trying to look very presidential. Um, but he, he actually looks pretty, pretty old and defeated. He's not a young man at this point. Was anybody um, yelling, lock him up? <laughs> well, it was a little late at that point, but they had been yelling it before. <laughs> um, after that, 
uh, one of the good things that Warren Harding does is actually uh, commute Eugene Debs's sentence. So he's he's let out of prison in uh, in December of 1921. So he spends about two and a half years there altogether. And at the time, his allies already saw him as a martyr, but many Americans thought this was a perfectly justifiable thing to have done, to have put someone who was a traitor to the country into prison. I think over time, mainstream opinions started to shift on that. And the Supreme Court's ideas about speech restrictions really began to change. And you began to get a new kind of more mainstream civil libertarian consensus um, starting to emerge. Bev, if I could get you to step back, does fighting to preserve democracy around the world mean a threat to democracy at home in the United States? I'm not sure I'd put it quite so starkly, but I do think that World War I turned out to be a moment of contradictions um, and a moment of experimentation. So part of what is going on in the United States with things like the Espionage Act or the German internment camps um, or federal political surveillance that's really beginning to emerge during this moment is that the government's trying to figure out what you do to fight this kind of war. And some of the things that it sets precedents for turn out to be very lasting things. You see both the creation of forms of federal political surveillance and the first federal intelligence agencies really getting to work in a significant way. Um, But you also see the birth of a kind of reaction against that. And and the best symbol of that is a new civil liberties consciousness that then takes form in uh, first in something called the National Civil Liberties Bureau in 1917 that later goes on to be better known as the ACLU. Um, And they really go on to have a huge influence in shaping how the courts are going to think about these questions, but also in shaping how ordinary Americans are going to think about civil liberties. So uh, I think it's not quite that fighting for democracy abroad represses democracy at home, but it it is a moment for people to really um, have a pretty significant struggle, a pretty significant debate about what it's going to mean to be involved in the world this way and what its consequences at home will be. Beverly Gage is a professor of history at Yale University. She's the author of the book, The Day Wall Street Exploded, a story of America in its first age of terror. To avoid the carnage of another world war, Woodrow Wilson tried to craft a bold new system of global diplomacy. In 2014, I spoke to Harvard historian Erez Manila about what Wilson envisioned for his League of Nations and why it ultimately didn't last. Wilson sees the war as evidence that the balance of power arrangement has failed spectacularly and cannot be resuscitated. There cannot, in his view, uh, be a new order that is again based on balance of power. So then the question becomes for him, what is the alternative to balance of power? And the alternative that he comes up with is what we've come to call, I suppose, uh, the League of Nations. And I think that 
Wilson has in mind a fairly straightforward parallel between the League of Nations as he sees it and the U.S. Constitution as it was formed in the late 18th century. Uh, Because keep in mind that, uh, and Wilson knows this well, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, uh, the several states that the Constitution was going to bring together were sovereign international entities. Describe uh, Wilson's vision of collective security through the League of Nations uh, when he first imagined it. And tell me how that changed as a result of his war experience. Well, the issue that is often focused on when we think about collective security and the point that received the most critique in the debate in 1919 and after is the military commitment. That is the sense that the collective security arrangements committed the United States to military involvement uh, in Europe or elsewhere, wherever conflict was going to break out. And actually, uh, Wilson was very, very clear, and he stated this numerous times explicitly, that the military intervention was going to be the very last resort, only if everything else has failed. And everything else meant two things that were to come before military intervention. One was what he called world opinion, his sense that once you get countries agreeing to be members to join up, you will get countries and leaders starting to feel that they're compelled, uh, they have an interest in a sense. Now, if that wasn't going to work, if some country was going to take aggressive action despite these kinds of shared understandings, then the next stage was going to be economic sanctions. Uh, But here, this was going to be a multilateral process. So this is the innovation. The innovation is it wasn't simply going to be one belligerent was going to put the other belligerent under blockade. It was going to be that the world community, in a sense, was going to agree through the League of Nations to put an aggressive nation under economic sanctions. So that was going to be the next stage. And he was very clear that that was an important stage. So buy-in from the international community was one of the real key innovations that Wilson was pursuing. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I I mean, look, international organizations uh, had been in place for a while. And obviously, the clearest precedent here is the Concert of Europe that was put in place after the Napoleonic Wars, after 1815. But for Wilson, actually, it wasn't a very good precedent because the concert only took into account the views of the great powers. And Wilson actually strongly believed in this concept of the equality of nations, that the small nations, as they were called at the time, had to be involved in this. And in fact, he perceived, in a sense, the small nations operating as a kind of break on the ambitions of the great powers. How did the League of Nations that actually emerged out of the Treaty of Versailles, how did that differ from Wilson's original conception? Yeah, well, that's actually a really important question because one thing that's often missed in uh, the history is that the League of Nations covenant that emerged out of Versailles was a very different creature from what Wilson had envisioned. And I think the best example of this is through the evolution of what's known as Article 10 that guarantee the security and territorial integrity of the nations, members of the League, and committed the other members to uh, intervening in various ways. Because what Wilson said in that draft was he started off by saying, yes, the League guarantees the security and territorial integrity of the member states. But then there was a very important and extended except. And he said, except in such circumstances, and I'm paraphrasing, except in such circumstances 
where changes in racial conditions and economic conditions and the desires of the peoples concerned will necessitate uh, changes in borders pursuant to the principle of self-determination. And he said that in such cases, the League of Nations could, by a 75% or a three-quarters majority, could actually affect the redrawing of borders, of international borders. So he actually wanted to build into the League a mechanism for what can only be described as, uh, I suppose, a form of world government. Right. This is really pretty radical stuff. It is. It is quite radical stuff. Now, I want to emphasize, Wilson did not come by this radical idea easily. He came by it because by the end of the war, he was convinced that the old order was so broken and so dangerous that something radical had to be done to put together an international system that would work. It wasn't exactly what Wilson envisioned, but we do get a League of Nations sans the United States. Did it accomplish what Wilson thought it would? Well, obviously it didn't. It didn't even come close. Um, First of all, the League covenant that emerges from the negotiations in Versailles is quite different uh, from what Wilson had in mind initially. It's, to his mind, a watered-down version. He still defends it. He still wants the United States to join it. Um, And that's because he has an evolutionary view of such institutions. He thinks, as long as we can put in place something, even something very imperfect, we have a chance of it evolving in the right direction over time. Then the other problem is that the United States Senate rejects the Treaty of Versailles and the League Covenant that was attached to it. And so the United States, in fact, never joins the League of Nations. How much did Wilson's vision shape American foreign policy in the century that has followed? Oh, I think it's shaped American foreign policy and American posture in the world to a very great degree. If we look at Franklin Roosevelt, I see Roosevelt as a convinced Wilsonian uh, who believes uh, in the Second World War that Wilson had it right in terms of the general principles but bungled the implementation because uh, he was a less-than-perfect politician. Um, and, and Roosevelt, I think, sets out to implement the Wilsonian vision, if you will, but to do it right. So he reconstitutes the League of Nations as the United Nations, and that system that Wilson put in place is not only not discarded, it's in fact bolstered and developed into the United Nations system that we have today, into the United Nations Security Council, the General Assembly, and all of the various other organizations uh, like UNESCO, like the World Health Organization, so on and so forth, uh, that in fact have a great deal of impact on the lives of, of people around the world. And so in that sense, I think we have to find that Wilson was right. The system that he believed in has in fact evolved, even if it hasn't fulfilled uh, all the hopes that he and others have had for it. Eris, thanks for making Wilsonianism safe for public radio. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Eris Manella is professor of history at Harvard University and author of the book, The Wilsonian Moment, Self-Determination and the International Origins of Anti-Colonial Nationalism.
That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And special thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.